Welcome to NCFM, Women Against False Accusations. This podcast shares truth about false accusations of sexual assault and abuse, revealing just how easy it is for the men in our lives to be falsely accused. You will hear true, heartbreaking, and sometimes shocking stories from the mothers, sisters, wives, friends, and advocates of men living the trauma of a society that has moved away from presumption of innocence. We invite you to join us as we take a stand for truth. everyone. I'm Lori DeBolt, president of NCFM Women Against False Accusations. Our organization, National Coalition for Men, has been raising awareness of our men's issues since 1977. And our chapter specifically focuses on false accusations and sexual assault. Um, Our goal is to raise awareness and put an end to all of these false accusations and sexual assault against the men that we love. Before we introduce our next guest that we have with us, I'd like to turn this over to our co-host, Val. Thanks, Lori. Um, We are here today speaking with uh, Dawn and Ronez Durrell. Uh, They are going to talk about um, the story that they had, or not the story, but what happened uh, to Ronez that ended up having him falsely imprisoned for many, many years. So uh, thank you both for being with us today and telling your story. Um, And hopefully this will help someone else that might be facing the same same type of situation. Hello, my name is Ronis Durrell and uh, I was wrongly convicted of a crime, a sex assault in 2003. it starts like most of these uh, crimes start. I had no knowledge of a situation. I knew nothing about it. I was in the military, um, Operation Enduring Freedom, defending the country. I like to start my story with 9-11 when um, most people was watching what happened from their living room couches and stuff. I was manning my battle station. I had to leave my wife and my kids uh, at home not knowing what was going on to go defend the country. So after, shortly after 9-11, I deploy uh, to the Persian Gulf doing Operation Enduring Freedom. I received a Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal for saving a sailor life who had fallen off the ship doing night flight operations. So I, was, uh, I got an award for that. I'm about to be promoted, but when I come back, um, I was told that I had to uh, go over to another side of the base and I didn't understand why I had to go there and the ship, no one told me anything. Uh, when I got over there, it was police detectives and I was getting arrested uh, for sex assault. And again, I'm confused because I don't know where it's coming from, but then it's, uh, they said that I had sexually assaulted uh, a young girl from a woman that once dated. And you know me thinking like, there's no way that they're gonna arrest me for this stuff. I was so confident that I wouldn't be convicted that you know, I talked to my mom and she was like, you think we should get a lawyer? And I'm like, for what? There's nothing here. There's nothing that's going to prove or even come close to saying that I did something that I didn't do. I had too much confidence in the system because they tell you if you didn't do something that, you know, nothing's going to come of it. Uh, I went and talked to a police detective. Um, I did everything they said you would do if you was innocent in this situation. I testified at my own trial. 
um, the allegations were so crazy that it was like she couldn't say a year that it allegedly happened. Uh, she couldn't give no time frame. So I was charged with sex assault and they put a two year time frame, one count of sex assault in the first degree and four counts in the uh, third degree. But they wouldn't tell me a time frame because I was in the military. And like I said, I was being deployed. I could have had an alibi defense, but they said, pick a day within those two years, which made it impossible for me to defend myself uh, using the alibi defense. So again, I went to court and I was confident because there was absolutely nothing that linked me to this crime. We don't know the date, we don't know the time. It was her word against mine. And every time the story was told, the story was changed. So me thinking like, this is America, you know, that's not a third world country. You know, we have to be proven uh, guilty first. You know, you're innocent until proven guilty. And I'm thinking, there's no way that I'm going to be proven guilty with this type of evidence. You know, but the prosecutor had hid a lot of stuff that we didn't know. And it was like, he asked the jury one question, like, why would she lie? And because I didn't have that. I don't know why she would lie. Who would know why someone would do something? And because I couldn't prove why she would lie, the jury thought that was good enough to take me away from my family, my career, and sentence me to 20 years in prison. And it was based off that one question, well, why would she lie? Well, after hearing the guilty verdict, I mean, everything changes. You know, it was like slow motion for me because I was in such disbelief that I was even convicted, I couldn't believe what happened. And then you always hear about what happens to sex offenders in prison. So now I have to switch my mindset from, wow, you're being convicted of sex assault to now you have to go and fight for your life because uh, this is what happens to guys who are accused of this type of crime. So going into prison, just having a mindset of, they're going to have to kill me because I refuse to go to protective custody. I refuse to back down from anyone. And I was just so angry that I was convicted in the first place. You know, everything I had worked for, I lost um, my freedom, my family. I have a question for you. I have a question for you on that. Does, does, do you think that we want to think that we have the rule of law? Right, and, and these are the things that you've been fighting for as a military member. Um, do you think that your, your military service and your background changed your perspective? On, like, I don't know exactly what I'm asking, but like, does that play into how, how much you thought you had a good basis going into the case? Because, like, my, because you had spent so many years defending our country. Exactly. Because my I'm from the South, so I've been around some racism, but like I believe that if you work hard and put yourself in good situations, it would always work out for you. My mm -hmm. stepfather, he was a um, he was in the army and he was a police officer. Uh, my brother uh, was in the Marines. So we was law and order. You know, you do it this way, and this is how it's believe supposed in justice. to work out. That's yeah. what they teach you, right? Yeah. So if you do what you're supposed to be doing, this is how it's going to work out. And 
I was really naive at first. I thought that the system, you had to do something for them to come after you. You know, I really believed that. That was my belief that they're not going to come arrest you for nothing. You had to do something. And that's what my thinking was. And that's why I had so much confidence in the system when I went forward. So to hear the guilty plea was like, I was so shocked. Like, what did you hear that made you take me away from my family, made you just ruin my life and ruin their life? You know, young kids, what did you hear? You heard that I don't know how old I was. I don't know this. I don't know that. I got to the witness stand myself, sat up there, looked you right in your face and told you I didn't do it. You know, I, I... at the end of the question in the prosecutor, he said this, he said, the defendant, he's smooth. He has an answer for every question that I asked him. You know, everybody likes him. No one said anything bad about him. That's the truth. <laughs> exactly. Now, that's the crazy thing about it. He used the truth to get me convicted. So he used the truth and then mm-hmm. told the jury at the end that he's a player. Don't let him play you. And then that's what got me. Like, no one said I did anything but the girl. And she doesn't even know when and how. And every time she told a story, it was different. So when I get in prison, like, every minute seemed like an hour. And every hour seemed like a day. You know, I just was hoping that somebody was going to call me and tell me that it was a big mistake and that, you know, they was going to let me out. And just to stand up all night you know, just stress and the, you know, crying at night. I used to cry at night, read my military evals and like, this is who I am. You know what I mean? And it didn't take me standing on the corner. You can't sit back and look at this police record and say, oh, he has a history of violence and this and that. So yeah, he did this. I'm serving this country, willing to, you know, sacrifice my life in defense of the country. And this is how I was treated. And you know, it was just, it took me like so long. And I tell a story that I, I, I haven't told many. And I said now, because I think it'll help people. I got to the point to where I thought I was going to kill myself. And like, I've always been a strong person and anybody could tell you like, I would fight army of people because that's who I am as a man I I stand on my own and I defend myself so I never thought I would ever be in a situation to where I would feel that vulnerable to where I would hurt myself so I was in the shower and I had a razor and then something just said kill yourself and I was like no I can't kill myself I, I got my mom my kids and then it was like kill yourself stronger and I was still trying to tell myself, no, nah, I can't kill myself. I, you know, my kids, my mom, I can't do it. And then the third time, it was like, kill yourself. And I thought I was going to kill myself. And and I was crying. And I just, I can't believe I'm going to kill myself. And then, you know, my mom is somebody I talk to every day. And she always taught me so much. And she told me that uh, God would never put you through anything that you can't bear. And then I just cried out to him and said, you promised me that you would never put me through something that I couldn't bear. And then it was like a calm just washed over me. 
and I just felt his presence and I felt you got to hold on. The storm won't last long. Just keep your faith. And it strengthened me. And I got up and I was never that vulnerable again. In every situation we had, they turned us down many times, but it didn't break me. It only gave me more resolve to push forward and push forward. And when Dawn came up with the Innocence Project, um, you know, they took the case and just by them taking the case and knowing you have somebody there to fight for you and you don't have to fight, other people believe that you're innocent, then I was able to relax. And by Dawn holding down everything else, she took care of me, she took care of the kids. I, I didn't have to worry about anything. I had all the commissary I wanted. I had letters, I had phone calls. So all I had to do was do the time. And I learned people, I learned, I, I met people in there who taught me how to do the time and don't let the time do you. So I started uh, being positive, hanging around positive people, trying to do positive things. And I just had to have- How, how hard was belief. that to find in, how hard was that to find in prison? You know, were, were there good support groups that you could, could go to or did you really just have to do a lot of the work yourself? to find support. I, I, it was just self. Everything in prison is you You find the yeah. people that, that think like-minded to you and that's who you hang with and that becomes your support group. You know, there's no, you know, because I refused to do any programs. I wasn't hanging around other people that was in my situation. You know, I'm in prison and I'm in here with a bunch of, uh, of wolves and you have to not present yourself right. as a sheep because you would find yourself in a lot of trouble. Right. So I was just in there, I found people I was cool with. Um, you know, I got jumped by 11 guys when I was in prison and that was the last fight I had. And then, like I said, I told them we could do this every day because I'm comfortable in this. And I was just really on that type of level. And, and after that, I had gained the respect of a lot of people. So I was able to stop fighting and, and put down my hands and picked up my Bible and I had to do more reading and believing and hoping and praying. And, and, and that's where it's at. Cause a lot of times you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. You got to just know you have to keep walking this direction and it's there, you know, sooner or later, you're going to see it. You just have to keep walking. And when I tell you, they turned us down many times, you know, we, Every time we thought we would have everything to show them, even when the two guys came forward and admitted that they was the ones that had sex with the girl, when the mother came forward and admitted that they lied and they knew about all this stuff, I had so much confidence that, that I was coming home and we went to court and they asked me to plead to a misdemeanor. You know, even though they know I didn't do anything, they asked me to plead and I said, no, I wasn't pleading to anything. And, you know, I had lost faith in the system. I went back to my cell and didn't know that I was going to get out. And I remember right before I paroled, um, I had told my attorneys that I'm, they was, my attorneys told me they're not going to parole you. And I was like, I don't care. I don't want to parole anyway. But then um, something kept telling me to go talk to the parole board. And I was like, yeah. I told Dawn, I said, something's telling me to talk to the parole board just to tell them my story. And she said, I think you should. I said, yeah, I'm gonna just go in there and tell them my story. I know I'm not gonna get out. So I went there, I told them my story and 
you know, first thing I did when I walked in there, he knew I didn't do any programs. You know, for sex offenders, you have to do a, a two-year uh, course just to get out. I didn't do anything. And so when I walked in here, he was like, why are we here? And I just said, I just want to tell you my story. I told him the story. He looked me in my face and he said, you know what? I believe you. Some people don't belong in prison and I believe you're one of them. And that's, that's how amazing. I end up getting paroled. You know, you just need somebody to believe in you. And and to me, that's more than anything else. Like, even though I didn't know I was going to get my freedom, just knowing other people believed that I was innocent, it helped me tremendously. Ronis, thank God you listened to God and that shopper. Yes. Thank God. Yeah. I mean, your mom, Dawn, your kids, thank God. And I'm so thankful that you listened and that you stood in and persevered. I just, so many men lose hope and faith, right? Thank God. And your story is definitely going to help them. Dawn, um, this is your husband, right? You're an amazing support then and now for him. How was this, how, how was this impacting you? I can imagine it was pretty rough. Oh, it's rough. I mean, having him incarcerated for something that he didn't do and knowing who did it, um, it's devastating in itself. And then not only that, but five weeks after he got convicted for this sex crime, the accuser married a guy older than him, which was an indicator now we knew who it was. We, well, we knew of him, we didn't know about the other one until later on down the road. But just knowing the devastation that it caused to the family the pain that we felt, what the kids had to go through to not understand why their father is away, why they can't see him on a regular basis. Um, it goes from the emotional turmoil, the mental anguish that you, you feel, not knowing how he's actually doing, because I know he's not gonna tell me everything that's going on in there. Because um, he's not gonna wanna share you know, the bad things. I mean, I find out about some things now that I didn't know then because he, he's a little more open with it now. Um, but when he was going through it, my biggest fear was he was going to have to defend himself and possibly take somebody's life because of what he was in there for. And I know that it's right for him to defend himself because of the, the crime and how they handle sex offenders. And then to know that he's in there and he didn't do it. I mean, that just makes it even, even worse. So you go through the mental part of it. You go through the emotional struggle you go through. Now you have to be the the strength for him, for the family, for the kids, for yourself. But then what about the financial burdens? I went into extreme debt to make sure that our family was taken care of, the kids had what they wanted, what they needed, of course, what they needed first, but you want them to still have some, side, some sort of normalcy, even though dad's not around. So you still give in to things that you know they want because you want them to be happy and you want to take away that, that pain that they're feeling. But then for him and knowing that he was in there doing time for something that somebody else did to make sure that he had phone time, commissary, anything that helped him maintain his sanity. I didn't care what it cost, what it was going to take. He was going to have it because that's the only way that he's going to be able to do his time and not lose himself in there. And then, you know, so having to take on, I was working two or three jobs at a time, which took time away from kids, time away from family. It took time. So I wasn't an absent parent per se, but I wasn't as present as I could have been had the situation not, you know, taken place. So 
you know, you fast forward all these years and yes, happy that he's home, of course. You know, you want, want him out, you want him free and away from all this nightmare. But the reality is the eight years in prison and eight years on parole, yes, we're together. Yes, things are good. But we went through hills and bounds to get where we're at. The PTSD, the things that he goes through, the turmoil that he goes through that he doesn't necessarily always share. At least I know him well enough that I can tell when he's in a, having a moment, he just needs to be left alone. And I try to do my best to respect that and just keep the kids at bay and let him have his time. But it wasn't always that easy. When he first got out and he wanted to go do his own thing, it was, I don't want to say offensive, but it was scary to me. And I guess you could say I got kind of offended because I'm like, I was the one doing everything. What, do you, what is this? This is just foreign to me. I was so used to doing everything for him and with him that for him to go off and you know, have time with somebody else, meet friends and hang out. It's just like, what about, I'm the one that was fighting for you the whole time, you know, but having to understand what they go through and they need that, that space, you have to give it to them because if you don't, it's not going to work. They've been told for years when to do, what to do, how to do, where to do, and to not have that same kind of feel when they come home is something that it takes an adjustment and it takes time and it doesn't happen overnight. I would say it probably took us about five years, maybe six years before we finally got to a place where it was more understanding for me. And the help with that was going to the Innocence Project conferences and seeing that, okay, you're not tripping. It's not you. It's the situation. Mm -hmm. Cause like that. real. Yeah. All right. So for to, everybody, yeah. for everybody. Whereas initially I thought it was just him, but it wasn't. So having that support and being able to rely on other people as well, like the wives, the spouses, significant others to go back and say, hey, oh, you're going through that too. Okay, it's not just him. It's, you know, so we've become a big family and then just have an understanding of how to deal with when they go through the things that they're going through. And this is what the general public does not get. This isn't, okay, you know, trial's done. He's taken away. Okay, story over. Not at all. Ramos, you wanted to take your life. You wanted to end it, right? Gone. I mean, you picked up all the slack. You kept him going. And then that stress stopped the minute he left the prison, right? No. When it I, didn't. <laughs> maybe I should put it this way. It's like, he's out now. <laughs> right? you, you have the yeah. happiness that he's out and he's home. But with that comes new stresses, right? Because nothing different got to deal with. You got a pro officer who is not supportive. They're supposed to be helping you get back into society, not doing everything they can to try to cripple you. And if Ronis wants to talk on that, he can. But it, it just there's a whole. It's like you got this chapter, now you open another chapter. But there's new stresses. There's new barriers. There's new hardships. There's new hills that you got to get over. It's hard in a sense, is a little bit harder. And now that he's been exonerated, it's still not over. Because guess what? The pain and suffering that he went through, it doesn't go away. Yeah, he's free. Yeah, he's right. been exonerated. His record's been expunged. But the pain and the suffering that has been there that we went through for 18 years is still there. It doesn't just go away. Our kids still feel the, the pain from this, from the things that happen. They still suffer through things because of what this wrongful conviction has done. He still goes through, he's gonna forever go through things. He's never gonna be who he was before he got incarcerated. 
I'm not the same person I was before he got incarcerated. You just have to pick up and keep moving forward to try to put your best foot forward and provide the support that they need and have a serious understanding of the things that they go through and not hold stuff against them because they're still trying to figure it out themselves because of the things that they're going through. And that's something that is, and it, does. it takes, yeah, definitely an adjustment. And that's where, you know, you got to have the love, the support and the understanding because this is an ongoing battle it is not going to stop just because they're exonerated because they got out, whatever the case may be. No, this is, this is life moving forward. Such a painful, realistic story, right? Bad, horrible experience. Ranis, um, how did you feel? What were your feelings when you discovered that you were exonerated? These charges were reversed. It was no, it was expunged. How did how did you feel that moment when you heard? The crazy thing is that was a long process as well, because okay, the first time I got the cases over case over tent was in February 27, 2018. You know, Dawn calls me and she says, you want, it's been reversed. And I'm thinking, not. And, you know, you've been fighting for something so long, you don't think it's ever going to end. And I was like, no, call the lawyer. You know, I want to hear him say it, right? So he says, yeah, they overturned the conviction. So now I'm, I allow myself to get excited. I'm happy. And then I'm like, okay, when they're going to put it into the record? That took months that it shouldn't have took. And then... This, the Hawaii Supreme Court took the case up. So now I'm worried, like, why did they take the case? You know what I mean? Now they're giving some validity to what the state is saying. So it took a year in order for uh, the Supreme Court to rule. And I just happened to be in Virginia uh, visiting my brother. I had just got out of the shower and my lawyer called and he says, it's over, you won. And I was like, like what? Like it's over. You won. The Supreme Court ruled for you. So then it's just numb, and it's crazy that you would think you would be so excited, but it's a range of emotions. It's like if I take something from you that means so much to you, and I hold it hostage for a long time, and then I give it back. You're happy that you got it back but then the pain of you me taking it from you is still there as well so it's like yeah i'm i'm happy i got this back but then i'm still like why did you take it i shouldn't have had to go through all this and then it was so crazy because my phone started ringing okay it's on abc news it's on world news it went around and people start calling me oh i saw your story on the news so my brother i was in his studio in the basement and I'm just listening to music and I'm just just feeling you know it's I'm not happy you know I'm not you know it's just like okay I'm it's like man you I'm upset that I'm not as happy as I should be you would think I'd be running around dancing it's none of that it's okay that that part is over but why did they do this to you and then you start reliving everything but then I get back and I have to go to court. I'm thinking with all this evidence that they're gonna drop the charges. So I allowed myself to believe that the first time I went to court that it was gonna be over. But when I got there and the state was acting like they was gonna retry me, it triggered me to a point to where I almost lost it. And I was like, 
I was upset, I was angry, but then I said, I have to stay grounded and just stay focused because I allowed myself to believe that it was over when it wasn't over. And now I'm feeling some type of way. So we went through that. And then when the um, judge finally said that it was over, she dismissed it with prejudice. She said the things that I suffered, she acknowledged that. And then I cried in the courtroom because of the things she was saying, acknowledging the pain and the suffering. And then it just felt empty, right? It's crazy. Like, it's like, if you feel empty, it's not happy. People think, oh, you're exonerated. So you're happy. You're running around. You No, it's like, you've been fighting. You've been doing, if you do anything for a, a long a period of time and then it's taken away, there's a void there. So I decided to fill that void with helping others instead of filling it with other things. And so that's why Dawn and I, we always try to reach out. We always try to, you know, if our voice would help people, whatever we can uh, do to help people, because it's not, uh, you're exonerated, so you're happy. Because like she said, like there's so many things I had to do. I used to be afraid to walk across the street. I used to be afraid to be in cars and then somebody merging next to me because you got to think you're not seeing that stuff or feeling those uh, basic uh, things when you're in prison. All you're doing is looking at bars or walls or wide wire fence. That's all you're looking at. So just just that alone, you know, when my son tried to walk across the crosswalk, I hesitated like three times before I was able to force myself to go across because I see cars driving up and I'm afraid you know, being afraid of large crowds and stuff like that, that's, that's stuff you always gotta, uh, you always gotta deal with. So it is, it's not really a, I mean, don't get me wrong, you're definitely thankful. But I don't want to say happy. Um, right. I don't know, I as happy it's as a good type of mourning, almost. Right. Yeah. That I, I, I still watch prison yeah, shows because I find comfort in watching prison shows. Like she said, sometimes I just want solitary confinement. I want to be left alone and I don't want nobody around. And that's just, just part of what I do. It's part of just what I do. I and mean, like she was saying, mm-hmm. sometimes it's hard because sometimes I want to just get up and go just to prove to myself I could get up and go. Hey, you don't even got to be going nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to go. Like just so you like, you don't have a PO because like you said, they, they, I went through a lot, even through the PO system. When I first time out of prison, my first night, I slept outside in the rain on the cot under a tree because they tried to make me go to a halfway house that was unlivable. And I said, and I told her that night, this is my first night out. I told her I'm going back to prison tomorrow because I'm not going to stay there. And then they allowed me to move. And that's the thing about what anybody going through, you just have to have the resolve to fight all the way to the end. And, and like, come what may, because I, to myself, I said, listen, if you do something to me, I'm okay with that, but I can't do it to myself. I didn't want to sell myself short. I wanted to fight my fight, whatever that was. And as long as I was fighting my fight, I'm okay with the outcome. I am so thankful that you shared this, that, I've learned a lot. This isn't over when they say you're exonerated. And that's what breaks my heart. This journey goes on for the rest of your life. And I am so sorry 
um, I call it a success story, but where's the success? Why did it even have to begin? You know, with the prosecutor saying, um, why would she lie? That's my question. Why are they lying? Why are they doing this to our men and the families that love them? Thank God. Thank God. And why is there no accountability for that? Absolutely. Accountable for that. He can't get back 18 years. We can't get back the 18 years of time lost. He can't get back time with loved ones who passed away that he lost all that time with. But there's no accountability for that. What about the prosecutors who deliberately make up stories or withhold exculpatory evidence that would help exonerate somebody before they even go through that? They're not held accountable. So a person can just make a statement and lie on somebody and cost them their life. What about those who were sentenced to death and died? Right, right. Nobody is held accountable. And that's exactly, that's exactly what we're going to do is we need to start holding people accountable for this. Honest and Dawn, I am so very blessed to have had you guys with us and to be part of our group here. And Ronis, I again, I want to say thank you. Thank you for holding on. Thank you for listening to God. You've uh, just uh, been a blessing to so many people. Um, and thank you for your military service. Amazing. Thank you. Thank absolutely. you. Absolutely. If you had just one more thing to leave your audience, to leave our audience with, um, if we can just give a brief comment, Don and then Ronis, what, what else, what one thing would you want to tell our audience before we leave? You want me to go first or Don? Um, you can go first, Ronis or Don, it doesn't I, matter. I would say that um, every victim is not lying and every suspect is not guilty. The only way we get to the, the truth of the matter is we have to test everything, credibility. We have to go in it with no uh, misconceptions. We just have to go in with no preconceived notions that if someone tells you something, it's okay to trust, but verify. And when in cases where there's no DNA, there's no witnesses, it's just somebody worried against the other person's word, then what makes your word more powerful than mine? What makes you more believable than, believable than me? So if anything, trust, but verify. And everybody is innocent until proven guilty and go where the evidence takes you. You know, I'm not here to say everybody accused is innocent. I'm not, that's not what I'm here for. You know, if you're a true victim, I stand with you. And that's on both sides. If you was wrongfully convicted or if you're a true victim of sex assault, I stand with you. I have daughters, you know, that I would protect with my life. So I don't want it to think, want you to think that I'm against true victims. This is not a us versus them. Just because I was lied on that everybody's lied on and everybody's lying. Let's stick together and we have to go for truth and justice at the end of the day. That's all we want. If any, if my son was guilty, he's guilty and he has to stand for it. But if he's innocent, I'm going to fight for him just as hard. And somebody's word alone shouldn't dictate whether somebody's innocent or guilty. And the why would they lie standard has to be demolished because you don't know why I would do something. I would do whatever I feel like doing. That has nothing to do with you. And that shouldn't be the case that I, as a defendant, have to tell you why somebody would lie and make up an allegation. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's firmly what we at NCFM Women Against False Accusations believe in too. Totally behind your, your message on that. Dawn, would you like to share one last comment with our audience? Yeah, the last thing I would say, I mean, I, I agree with everything that Ron has just said. It's something that we talk about a lot and what we've been um, posting when we're trying to reach out to help those. But for those who are going through it, um, yeah, wrongfully accused right now, going through the trials, the tribulations of it, already been convicted in their families. You just got to hold on to hope and keep on fighting and just know that there is a support system. So please don't hesitate to reach out because we're here to help in any way that we can, even if it's just to be, you know, a mental and emotional support. But hang on, because there's light at the end of the tunnel. You just have to be willing to put in the time and put up that fight and not give up hope just because you got turned down. Just keep fighting and keep pushing. Amen. Beautiful. You guys, thank you so much for joining us. And anyone out there listening, know that you're not alone. If you've been falsely accused, please reach out to us, reach out to a, a support group. You guys can do this. There is hope. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our true stories. If you have a story to share about a man in your life, please reach out to us at www.womenagainstfalseaccusations.ncfm.org. The National Coalition for Men has been advocating for men and the women who love them since 1977. Our NCFM Women's Group offers emotional support and a place to actively work together to raise awareness around false accusations. Remember, you are not alone. Join us to learn more.